chapter 4. Okay, Acts chapter 1, Jesus is alive from the dead, rose from the dead, okay, and showed himself alive for 40 days, okay, to over 500 people. He, told, he showed that he was alive from the dead. And uh, as he was alive, he told the disciples, go back into Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to receive power and you're going to go out and be witnesses of me uh, locally and regionally and then all throughout the world. Okay, so Acts chapter two, the disciples obey. They go back to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. And the very guy, Peter, who had just denied Jesus three times, receives boldness to tell people about Jesus. And this part of Acts, that witness starts happening locally there in Jerusalem. All right. So Acts chapter two, witness is happening. Acts chapter three, um, miracles happen. Okay. So a guy's healed. That opens up more opportunities for telling people about Jesus. And so you've got the preaching of Jesus. You got healing showing Jesus to be true. And then you have this church that's just preaching Jesus. They're healthy. They're loving each other. They're being generous. They're getting together all the time to study the Bible and to be praying and to be feasting together and to be taking communion and remembering the Lord's Supper, all right? And when you have those elements all combined, you've got the Holy Spirit. You've got the preaching of the gospel. You've got a living, giving, active, biblical, sound, praying church. You've got people stepping out of faith and using their spiritual gifts and maybe healing some people, right? Maybe doing some miracles and, and bringing God glory for it. The next thing is that is demanded in the equation is persecution, okay? Acts chapter one, two, and three demand Acts chapter four. And so as we get into Acts chapter four, we have persecution happen because of the preaching of the gospel. So uh, Peter and John are gonna be the first apostles, the first disciples to experience uh, this persecution, which is exactly what Jesus said would happen in Acts chapter one, verse eight. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power to be witnesses. Anybody remember what the Greek word for witness is? All of you Greek scholars out there? Marturo, marturo, which is where we get the English word. Nope. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Martyr, right? <laughs> was that you, Lauren? Oh, I got you good. You deserved it, though, honestly. Okay. Um, it wasn't you, was it? Oh, you got off the hook. All right. So martyr. So uh, it's been said that dying for Jesus doesn't make you a martyr. It just shows who the real martyrs already were. Okay? So when we're full of the Holy Spirit, we're out there sharing the gospel. We're sharing the gospel to the point of even death. If it means that I die to tell people about Jesus, that's what I'm doing, okay? And so that's what happens by Acts chapter four. These guys are out there publicly telling people about Jesus. And the minute you start talking about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life, that's when the, the hammer hits, you guys. People don't mind you being religious. People think it's a little odd, but they don't really mind you, you know, coming and filling a pew and keeping it warm on a Sunday. But when you start opening up your mouth and telling them the hope that you have of heaven and freedom and salvation from sin and hell, and that that comes only through Jesus Christ, all right, you've drawn a line in the sand and the world will hate you. And we're told not to be surprised of that. Jesus says that uh, if the world hated me, you better bet the world is gonna hate you. A disciple is not above is master. Now, right now, the middle school group is going through Acts chapter 14. Paul was on his first missionary drip. <laughs> drip. Sometimes missionaries are nothing but drips, right? Uh, and he goes through Asia Minor, and he goes through Antioch, and Lystra, and Iconium, and Derby, and he gets persecuted. Paul gets stoned and drunk out of the city, supposed to be dead. In fact, some think he actually died, and then they prayed him back to life. And then on his way back to Jerusalem, finishing up his missionary drip, uh, he says, you know what? I'm gonna go back through those cities that I just went through and I was persecuted in and I'm gonna strengthen the disciples there and I'm gonna say in every city, this word of encouragement. Are you ready for it? Probably something about rainbows and lollipops and unicorns and kittens, I bet, right? You know? No, it's this. 
we must, through many trials, enter the kingdom of God. Little Debbie Downer on the mission trip, right? No, he speaks the truth that if we're going to live in Jesus, we must, through many trials, enter the kingdom of God. Or as Philippians chapter 1, Paul said, uh, for to you it has been appointed not only to believe, oh, we love that, don't Yes, it was appointed to me to believe. But then the verse goes on, and also to suffer for his name's sake. All right, this is the reality that we need to just get used to right now. Why? Because this is the reality of 90% of the rest of the world, if not more. The majority of the world right now is suffering under persecution for converting from darkness to light, from their gods that are dumb idols, the Bible says, to worshiping the living God. And when they do, they're persecuted. They're ostracized from their communities. They're kicked out of their families. They lose their inheritance. They lose their jobs. They're tortured for Christ and they're put to death for Christ. And you guys, that is what the majority of Christians in this world experience. When we go to Nepal, we have firsthand interaction with people through our organization that have died for the name of Jesus. And the saying is that if you you are publicly baptized as a Christian in Nepal, you have a two-week life expectancy. Okay, so that's just, that's just that country. You know, then you start looking at Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia and Iran and Iraq and, and, and the persecution is severe and it's strong. Now, I don't know what it is that we've got here, but it's the anomaly. Okay, I mean, look around. This is pretty nice, right? Ah, it's a little warm in here. It's a little cold in here. Maybe we can talk to the deacons about adjusting the thermostat a little bit. Got to get in there for my fireside fellowship time and get my coffee with my creamer and my donut and my orange. You know, I hope they have bananas this week. And it's like, okay, now this is good, all right? You got to love your sugar-coated lye covered in sprinkles. They're delicious. I love mine too, all right? But the blessings that we receive in this small moment of human history where we have some comfort as Christians, it's not to make us fat and sassy people. It's to equip us and encourage us and to bring people in to equip us to now go out and share the hope of Jesus. This is a, this is a little window of happiness that we've got before it's been granted to us not only to believe and to enjoy an apple fritter, but to also suffer for his name's sake. And so to help keep this worldview and this perspective and this biblical truth in front of you, I want to encourage you to bookmark voiceofthemartyrs.com. Bookmark uh, Operation World or the Prayercast website or follow them on Facebook and they will keep in front of you the reality of regular persecution within the churches that are out there. And then we can do what the book of Hebrews says to remember those who are in chains as if you are chained with them. We remember him through prayer. And so this is the reality for the Christian. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I've got a quote for you here. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's a bit of a contemporary of ours. He lived in the 30s and the 40s. Uh, he was one, and you gotta read Eric Metaxas's book, Bonhoeffer. It's a bit thick, it's an easy read, and it's got pictures. So am I speaking anybody's language out there, okay? Great book, incredible book. Bonhoeffer, a lover of Jesus, had the opportunity to come to the United States and escape uh, World War II, but he knew that by the end of the war, people, his people, his German people were going to need someone who had lived through the suffering and anguish with them so that he could minister the hope of the gospel to them. So he stayed in Germany and would speak truth to the Christians that were falling under the Third Reich and the church leaders that were um, you know, curtailing to Hitler and his ideology. And uh, was actually part of an assassination attempt uh, on Hitler's life there. And, and a part of that eventually was arrested because of that. And uh, one month before the end of World War II, he was hung uh, for the testimony of Jesus. And here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote. He wrote, suffering is the badge of a true Christian. The disciple is not above his master. Luther, Martin Luther, reckoned suffering among the marks of the true church. And one of the memoranda drawn up in preparation for the Augsburg Confession similarly defines the church as the community of those who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. 
And so we have this blessed privilege as Christians to suffer and to be a part of the legacy of Jesus. Now, suffering isn't all bad. The Lord uses suffering. Can you believe it? No other God can claim that. Jesus Christ, who also took on suffering himself, can take suffering and transpose it into wonderful virtues and glory. Bishop Sheen said, one advantage of being thrown on your back is that you face heaven, right? The Lord uses suffering to refine us and to purify us and to work wonderful things. And then in church history, we also see, and we're going to see it in the chapters to come, that the more Christians that die for the testimony of Jesus, the greater the church grows. I remember we came back from a Nepal trip once, and we were just talking about how we came under such spiritual attack over there. The whole team got sick. We were throwing up like the whole way on the trail. So much like just difficult things. And uh, one of the guys that heard all the testimonies goes, it's just incredible. You guys come back talking about how just savage those trips are. And more people want to sign up for them to get out there and tell people about Jesus. You know, and that doesn't even have a persecution factor to it. The persecution factor, I think it's Justin Martyr that may have said that the blood of the martyrs is seed. And that the more that this seed goes out, the more the church grows. And we're going to see that today in chapter, uh, in chapter 4. So uh, looking in Acts 4.1, now as they spoke, by the way, we're going to make it through verse 12 today. Just to give you a little ray of hope out there. Or it might be like 12 more verses. How could be hopeful. Look at verse four. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Now, remember one chapter ago, chapter three, a lame man who was crippled from his birth was begging at the beautiful gate of the temple. Peter and John prayed for him. The Lord healed that man. He rose up. He went walking and leaping and praising God. And that healing afforded an incredible opportunity to tell people about Jesus. And Peter sees that opportunity. And the rest of chapter three is him telling people about Jesus. Okay. And so as they spoke to the people of verse one, they're telling people about Jesus. We have this group of people that happened to be the same guards that came to the garden of Gethsemane and arrested Jesus on the night of his betrayal and the night before his crucifixion. And some of these groups, a a group of this were people called the Sadducees. Now, when we read the gospels, we read more about the Pharisees. Okay. Pharisees and Sadducees were all part of the kind of the Supreme court of Israel called the Sanhedrin. And in the gospels, you see more of the Sadducees in there involvement in their antagonism towards Jesus. The uh, the Pharisees, they were guys whose full-time job was to keep the law of God, all 613 commandments. Now I'm telling you, this is the life of the party. I mean, you invite these guys to a Friday night family game night. I mean, it is like nothing but smiles and laughs having a Pharisee there. No, not at all, right? You read the gospels and you're like, these guys are totally, you know, joy kills being around them, right? Uh, always testing Jesus and trying to trip Jesus up. Uh, but in the book of Acts, we see more of the other side uh, of the Supreme Court. and They're the Sadducees. Now, if you're new to coming to church and being in the Bible, you might be like, Pharisees, Sadducees, I don't even know what you're talking about. Well, Pharisees, rule keepers. Sadducees, here's a good way to remember it. The Sadducees were sad, juicy. Because they didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. They didn't believe in heaven. They didn't believe in angels. I mean, they were sticks in the mud, just right up there with the Pharisees, okay? So much of the conflict in the book of Acts with the Jewish Supreme Court, you're going to see it being primarily with the Sadducees. And what are they often going to get fired up about? Someone talking about the resurrection out there? I smell it. I smell someone's talking about someone raising from the, you know, and they get all fired up and offended. And that's exactly what happened here. See it in verse two. They were greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. So these Sadducees, you know, they sniff it out that around the temple courts over at Solomon's porch, uh, someone's preaching in Jesus, the resurrection of the dead, and they're greatly disturbed. Some translations say they were worried Another translation says they were annoyed or exasperated, just completely maddened that someone is out there preaching the resurrection of the dead. Now, 
already in the book of Acts. In Acts 2.22, 2.32, 3.14, and 15, and 3.26, we have the preaching of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Already, we're, we're starting chapter 4, and there's been some preaching of the resurrection. And it begs us to ask, when you preach the gospel to your friends and your coworkers around the, uh, around the copy machine at work, or on the playground, or on the volleyball court, or uh, at the horse trough, or whatever it is, wherever you gather, really. Um, are you just telling people about that they're dead in their sin? Are you just telling people, even maybe something good, that Jesus died on the cross for their sins? And just leaving them there at the Xerox, thinking, well, that's nice that he died, but he dead. Or are you leaving them with, and now he resurrected from the dead. He ever lives to think of you and pray for you. And he's coming back again. All right. That brings some hope in life. One little practice that I have is when I read through the Bible and especially the book of Acts, I put a little R next to all of the references of the resurrection of Jesus. And you know what? It is a pillar of our faith. So get, get, get sharpened at telling people about the resurrection of Jesus. Now, It wasn't just that Peter and John were preaching the resurrection of Jesus. The Sadducees knew about that. They'd been following the Twitter feed, hashtag YOLO, JK, Y2 squared or whatever, like just kidding, Jesus back, y'all. You know, And they knew that uh, Pilate and all of his soldiers were trying to track down the body of Jesus. They never could find it. Why? Because he's not laying on a sick bed somewhere. He's not laying somewhere hidden away. He rose from the dead and he ascended to the Father. Okay, so they knew that there was this talk going around about the resurrection. But what they were preaching now is that Jesus was the first one to rise from the dead. And that anybody who believes in him will also rise from the dead. Preaching the resurrection. Even within the churches today, the resurrection isn't preached. You know, we think that we die and then somehow we get, you know, we inherit the sweet golden harp and then we just float around on the clouds for all of eternity. Like, I don't know what kind of heaven that is. I don't really want much of a part of it, okay? This is not the heaven of the Bible. Heaven of the Bible is the first fruits. Jesus Christ rose from the dead and he is also going to bring with him all those who believe and who sleep in Christ Jesus. First Thessalonians chapter four, first Corinthians chapter 15. The resurrection, preach it, know it, live it, have the hope of it, look forward to it. And you're gonna tick some people off while you do it, Okay. The Sadduc- there's Sadducees in every bunch out there, okay? All right? These guys were mad because this was an unauthorized preaching by unprofessional preachers, okay? Must have been Calvary Chapel, guys. You know, Alistair Begg said, all it takes to be a Calvary Chapel pastor is a pair of jeans and a Bible, you know? He also says, you know what? When the Calvary Chapel pastor preaches the gospel, they believe people are gonna get saved. And you know what? They just might, <laughs> We need a little more of that in our churches today. Here's these unauthorized preachers. What are they preaching? Look in verse three. Uh, Well, they're, they're frustrated with them. They lay hands on them and not in a good way. They put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. So here we have that first imprisonment of a disciple of Jesus. We have them put in, uh, in the jail, hopefully that, you know, as they're locked away for a night, they'll think about what they've done and it'll help them cool off. And, you know, maybe by the morning time, they get that first taste of prison breakfast and they'll be like, you know, why don't we cool it on the whole telling everybody about Jesus stuff, you know? Um, that's not going to happen in case you're wondering. All right. Uh, so put them in prison. It's evening time. Let them spend the night there. But in verse four, however, many of those who heard the word believed and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And so Luke, he's just so great in showing us uh, persecution, locked in prison, but check it out. The word of God isn't chained. You can't chain up and imprison the gospel. And here it is, 5,000. I think the NIV says, and that's not including the women and children that also became Christians. And so at this point in Jerusalem, if you count the revival that happened in Acts chapter two, if you count the 120 believers in Acts chapter one, if you count the 5,000 here, if we're just talking men, we're at 8,120. You, you, you double it or maybe triple it with women and children. You know, we're up there in the, the 30,000 new Christians in this new world of Jerusalem with evangelism happening. That's, that's what we're seeing. This is church history, right? Church growth right in front of us. Pretty exciting. Notice though, that those who were the ones that became Christians, they were the ones who believed in Jesus. See it right in the middle of verse four. They believed. What did they believe in? The word, right? The word, the Bible, the word of God. 
Uh, how did they believe the word? Because they heard the word. The bird is the word. Heard the bird, the bird, the word. Okay, whatever. Um, this is right up there with Romans chapter 10 that talks about whoever confesses the name of Jesus will be saved. But how shall they believe on them in whom they've not heard? And shall, how, how shall they hear about him unless somebody goes and testifies of him? And how shall someone go testify of him if they're never sent out? It's this golden ladder, uh, it's been called, of evangelism. You guys, by in about 16 minutes and 37 seconds, okay? I don't know if you know, but I got a little clock that I watch. I'm gonna send you guys out from here. You guys are gonna go out full of the Holy Spirit, zealous for Jesus. You're gonna start telling people about Jesus this week. They are going to hear the word and by the grace of God, some of them are gonna believe that word and be added to the church getting saved. It's the incredible process of evangelism that God created. And so here we see, even though we might be in prison for it, many hear the word and they believe. We see that in verse four. Moving on to verse five, here we see them addressing the Supreme Court after their night in jail. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest were gathered together in Jerusalem. So there's this sweet little family reunion of all the people that crucified Jesus. You know, uh, you you gotta love a good reunion, right? But you recognize the name Annas, right, from the Gospel of John. You recognize the name Caiaphas, these high priests and father-in-laws and all of that. Um, This is who Peter and John are gonna stand before in this trial, all right? Um, And we've got the same guards that arrested them, that arrested Jesus. We've got the same Sanhedrin standing that they're standing in front of that Jesus stood in front of. And they must be thinking, are we going to suffer the same fate as Jesus suffered not long ago? Um, those thoughts had to be going through their mind. Look in verse seven. And when they had set them in their midst, they asked, by what power or what name have you done this? So the Sanhedrin is wondering, um, What's up, like who gives you the right or what gives you the right? When we talk about name in Judaism, we're talking about power and authority. By what name do you do this or by what power do you do this? They're referring no doubt to how did you heal this crippled man who it's believed was actually standing with them. Maybe he was arrested, maybe he was in prison with them or maybe he was just brought there as a, as a witness to the whole thing. But he's there, we'll see that later on in verse 14. Um, So by what power and authority did you heal this man? And also, by what power and authority are you preaching the resurrection from the dead? Like what gives you the right and who gives you the right? Well, in chapter three, verse six of the book of Acts, it might be on the same page that you're on. You might need to flip, flip back one page. When Peter healed that lame man, he said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have you, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. It's an old kid's song. If you're new here, don't worry about it. Okay. Uh, It's in the name of Jesus Christ that you can rise up and walk. And then in the same chapter, verse 16, chapter three, verse 16, in his name or Jesus name, through faith in his name, he has made this man strong. So it's Jesus who gives us the power, the authority. It's the name of Jesus. Jesus. So they asked the question, by what power, what name, what authority did you do this? And Peter sees an opportunity and seizes an opportunity to tell these folks about Jesus. Now, I don't know if you guys are able to do the, do the math in your head right now, but just, you know, a little bit ago in the gospel of John, you had Peter emphatically denying that he ever knew Jesus with cussing. Okay. Like with cursing, denying, I never knew the man, okay? And on his last denial, Jesus walks out from his trial and locks eyes with Peter in the great drama of Peter's denial, okay? So it wasn't long ago, Peter was emphatically denying that he ever knew Jesus. Something happened now that by the fourth chapter of the book of Acts, this church history book that we're studying, Peter's already stood up two times and proclaimed, this is his third time, proclaimed to multitudes the risen living Jesus Christ. What happened? Two things. He saw the resurrected Jesus. He knew that Jesus was alive. And secondly, he was baptized with the Holy Spirit for boldness. And you know what? It's no different in this room today, you guys. 
We know that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. It's one of the best proved facts in all of history. Many reasonable men have gone from being atheists, investigating to disprove Christianity and put to death the lie that Jesus ever rose from the dead. And in their investigating what happened, they found out he really did rise from the dead and became the Lord of their life, okay? We know that Jesus rose from the dead. And even today, the baptism with the Holy Spirit is available to anyone that names the name of Jesus. It'll make us brave so that we go out and tell others. So what happened to Peter here? He's filled with the Holy Spirit in verse eight and he speaks up. Now, just maybe if you're a note taker, you might notice that he's filled with the Spirit. Now, this is the guy that in John chapter 21, Jesus breathed on him and said, receive the Holy Spirit. I believe personally that when Jesus breathed on him and said, receive the Holy Spirit, that he received the Holy Spirit, okay? This is the same guy that by Acts chapter one, Jesus said, now go down to Jerusalem and just wait in the presence of the Father and I'll send you the Holy Spirit to come upon you now and give you great courage. And so that's where we see the tense of the epi or the filling of the Holy Spirit where there's a continual filling and overflowing on a Christian's life to tell people about Jesus. So here, Peter, it's mentioned, and it'll be mentioned again in this chapter, he's filled with the Holy Spirit with courage to say, rulers of the people and elders of Israel. Verse nine, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, pause, put a pin in it. You hear the words of Jesus from John chapter 10 right here? When the Jews pick up stones to stone Jesus and Jesus says, many good works I've shown you from my father, for which of those works are you gonna stone me right now? And they said, not for any of the good works that you're doing, but because you being a man are making yourself equal to God. P.S. Jesus said he was God, okay? All right, so now we have the disciples saying, So what are you imprisoning us for? Which one of the good deeds, essentially, because we did a good deed to a helpless man? Is that why we're imprisoned here? Let it be known to you, verse 10, and to all all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. Guys, right there, mm, that is some bold preaching right there. Okay, he opens up his mouth and he respectfully acknowledges their leadership. God has placed them in authority. He honors them, but with truth and boldness, he speaks the truth in them, all right? And he tells them exactly the name. It's the name of Jesus. And you want a little more specific because Jesus is just Yeshua or Joshua, lots of Joshua's around, right? It's not just any Joshua, It's the Joshua that's from Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Well, I can name one. Jesus of Nazareth healed this guy, all right? And pardon my bluntness, but you crucified him. You killed him. You know exactly who I'm talking about, but God raised him from the dead, and he's the reason. He's the name. He's the authority that this man stands before you a whole, not a cripple laying on a mat anymore, but walking and leaping and praising God with really great ankle joints. Look in verse 11. Just yesterday, uh, Russell, my son's running track and his ankles and his feet have been hurting him. So we went to uh, the foot zone in Bend and um, didn't have enough money. So we left the foot zone in Bend, but we did go there. No, I'm just kidding. Great, great store. Um, I bought some stuff, but Russell didn't get anything. Um, And uh, they have this computer thing, you know, that they're like, oh, you got some walking issues? Come stand on this thing, you know, and uh, and it has these cameras that tell you, you know, (laughs) how your ankles are all messed up, you know, and uh, the whole time I'm just thinking, and immediately his ankle bones received strength, and he went walking and leaping and praising God, then they asked us to leave the store after I started singing that to them, but... uh, and so, you know, he, he's speaking this message that this is why this guy is standing here whole. It's because of the name of Jesus. Now look in verse 11. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And so Peter knew his Old Testament. He knew Psalm 118 verse 22. He knew the book of Isaiah. He knew that there was this prophecy by King David that the stone that would be there and building the temple, the cornerstone would be rejected. And as you go to Israel, you'll hear the legend. 
as you go to the Temple Mount. And as you, underneath the Temple Mount, you see the original Temple Mount uh, stones and walls uh, kind of underground. And you'll see these giant stones the size of buses. And the amazing thing, when you read the Old Testament, when they quarried the stones, it says that there was not the sound of a chisel or a hammer around the Temple Mount. They did all the fitting over in the uh, quarry, and then they drug these things um, you know, by logs and oxen up to the Temple Mount, and you can stand there and see, and the, just the, the fitting is just perfect. You can barely wedge a little piece of paper in between the stones. And the legend is that when they were building the temple, they had their first delivery of stones brought up to the top, and there was this one stone that just looked like, what is this? You know, did the rookie, you know, get his first jackhammer? You know, it's like, what? You forget this thing. I don't know what this is. The legend is that they rolled it down the Temple Mount and went back to work. And then when it came time to put down that capstone, the foundation stone, the most important stone of the foundation, they looked around. They checked the purchase order. They looked, you know, it's like, uh, hey, weren't you guys supposed to bring that cornerstone? And uh, we brought it the first day. Why don't you look at it? You know, like, oh, man, look around, look around. And then one of those workers was like, you guys remember when we shoved and heaved that giant, you know, colossal mess of a thing off the side let's go check that thing out again and they discovered that was that perfectly fit stone so they brought it back up and as the prophecy says it was a marvelous doing as it was the lord's doing now jesus says he quotes it about himself and says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone it was a marvelous doing it was the lord's doing and marvelous in our eyes and then he says this It is better to fall on that stone and be broken than to have the stone fall on you and grind you to powder. And man, isn't that just an affront to our pride? So many people, they won't come and bow their knee and their heart to Jesus because of their pride. I can make it on my own. I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty righteous person. When Jesus says, if you're gonna come to me, you gotta be like a little kid. And you got to mourn and sorrow over your sin and realize that you're spiritually bankrupt and you can get all snotty nosed and cry about it and just realize what a sinner you are and how you've de-godded God and you've made up all kinds of other gods in his place and you realize that you've done that and you come to Jesus for forgiveness and you're broken and humble before him. And Jesus says in Psalm 52, a broken heart and a contrite spirit, I've never denied. But you know who I will deny? The self-righteous, pompous, arrogant person who shrugs his shoulder at me and stiffens his neck at me and says, I will make it on my own. I am good enough and I will follow after my own gods of my choosing. And that person will have the stone fall on him and grind him to powder. He's the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, you guys. He's the one that it all is built Upon And coming off of that illustration of the cornerstone comes one of the best memory verses in the book of Acts, Acts 4.12. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now I want you right now, as you're holding that beautiful leather back book in your hand, or watching it on the screen, or looking at your device, I want you to right now bow your heart before this verse. Because it is completely antagonistic toward the current worldview of our culture, and of our nation, and of our world. Let's say it again. Nor is there salvation found in any other For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, you guys have taken your high school religion classes and gone to the university and heard about all the different religions and the criticisms against Christianity, and you've heard the other names. And by the way, there's more names every day. And you have heard of Buddha. You've heard of Muhammad. You've heard of Confucius. You've heard of uh, Hinduism and the you know, 200 million gods that they have. You've heard of Joseph Smith, Charles Russell, Mary Baker Eddy. There is no name, not one, that will save you. Every other name, if you put your trust in it, will lead you to hell. It's the name of Jesus. 
It's the most beautiful name. Philippians chapter two tells us that the name of Jesus is the name above every other name. And it's at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow under heaven and under earth and above the earth. Everyone will bow the knee to Jesus one day. Why? Philippians 2 says just before that, it's because Jesus humbled himself and he went to the cross and he took our sin upon him. Every knee will bow, whether they want to or not one day, at that name of Jesus. Doesn't that message war against our flesh? Doesn't it war against our culture? How grievous that this one nation under God would about kill somebody for preaching this message. It's all fine and dandy. You can be a pew warmer. You can go to church every day of your life, but you tell somebody else that they've got to believe in the name of Jesus or they will perish for all eternity. And that line has been crossed. And Peter very bravely speaks it to the very ones that killed Jesus. This message seems narrow-minded. It is. It comes from the very one who says, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. And nobody comes to the Father but by me. It comes from the one that says uh, that narrow is the way to life. And broad is the way that leads to destruction. He is the narrow way. For the narrow-minded. Now, why is this such an affront, even within Christian churches? And man, I've been in ministry, like regularly in ministry since 1997, okay? Was I even born in 1997? You're wondering, I know I look young. But since 1997, I've been regularly in ministry. I've been paid full-time ministry since 2001. So since 2001, I've been, in, I've been a youth pastor for many of those years, and I've grieved to watch some of my youth leave home and go and drink the punch of this world that says you can't trust the Bible. We don't even know where it came from. There's so many errors. There's so many translations. You guys, textual criticism, there's no work done in it. If you do your due diligence, you'll find that there is not even a manuscript you need to worry about. Every other famous and well-respected work of literature is just nothing compared to how much integrity the scripture has. I'm telling you right now, do your work, okay? And with that, we just drink the punch of the world. Dear friends that I've been in ministry with, even recently, uh, deconstructing the Christian faith. It's very popular right now to challenge everything and question everything. Problem is, is that they do it amongst the critics themselves, There's no good sounding board to wrestle through these questions with, all right? It's a dangerous place to be. A Pew Research poll says that 77% of Christians, when they're interviewed, said that other religions could lead to eternal life. But doesn't that seem right with the people out there, maybe even some of you, or people that you know, they're Prineville people. I mean, I'm pretty sure it says somewhere in the Bible, like if you have a Prineville zip code, you're going to heaven, like right away. You probably know everything about Christianity. I think it's in here. We'll find it, right? Good Prineville people who vote red or something like that, you know? Good Prineville people that, you know, they in God we trust the bumper sticker and all that good stuff. And when you ask them, you ask them what it takes to go to heaven. How do we go to heaven? How do I inherit the kingdom of heaven? Essentially, it comes down to just be a good person at the end of the day. Hope that you've done more good than bad and that the Lord will let you in. Okay? Now, how do we get to this point? 39% of claimed Christians actually believe the Bible to be the actual word of God. Only 39%. And so there's, there's a ton of lies out there. There's been no equipping. We don't even know where our Bible came from. Why would the Bible be anything special? Why would I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E? I have no understanding in theology of inerrancy of scripture. I have no understanding of the inspiration of scripture that God breathed out his word, that he used holy men of God to and carried them along as he gave them the word, as they wrote in their own styles, the very word of God and put his words on their tongues and through their pens. I have no understanding where the Bible came from. 
We don't know the canon. We don't know the tests of canonicity. These are all things that are just, I mean, it's, it's foreign to us as Christians. And you know what? Shame on pastors of churches for not teaching their people that. Okay, we've, we've been doing it. We've done it through school of ministry. We've worked in the high school ministry. Right now, guess what's happening? Two doors down, right there. Your kids are being equipped on bibliology right now. Okay, we're in the works right now to do school of ministry again this fall to equip you guys to know where the Bible came from so that we can know, did God really say, it's the words of Satan, Genesis chapter three. Did God really say Jesus is the only way and the truth and the life? Or is he just kind of like, man, I got my jelly bean sample platter out and there's all kinds of jelly beans and you just pick one, just pick whichever one you want. Guys, there's a sampler platter of religions out there. And man, you do your work on those. There's not one of them that's like, you know, that makes a lot more sense than this Jesus stuff. There's a lot of wickedness. There's a lot of demonism. There's a lot of no sense and nonsense. And I'm telling you, the evidence of the empty tomb of Jesus Christ and the veracity of the scriptures holds up. It holds up. Augustine said, if you believe what you like and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. We want to be our own authority, so I'll just believe myself. I'll determine what's relevant, what parts of the Bible I want to keep, and what parts of the Bible I want to toss. And we live in an era of tolerance. We live in an age where tolerization, you know what I mean, Tolerance is a buzzword. Now, thankfully, we live in a nation with a constitution that has legal tolerance to where really you can believe what you want and say what you want, and I'll just respect you as a human being made in the image of God, but I don't have to agree with you, and we can have conversation and disagree. I'll tolerate you legally. You have the right to believe what you want legally. Intellectual tolerance. What people are talking about now is intellectual tolerance. And it's where we draw the line. To quote Alistair Begg, to cultivate a mind that is so broad that it can tolerate every opinion and idea without ever detecting anything in it to reject is not actually a virtue, but it's a vice of the simple-minded. It's actually a loving thing to disagree with people when they're wrong. It's actually a loving thing to believe that truth is objective, all right, and that you can speak into people's ideas. And so we live in this day where a message like this from Acts chapter 4, verse 12, that preaches and teaches the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the name given uh, given among men under heaven, He's the name. And you know what? Here at Calvary, this is the hill we die on. This is, this is when we go to prison. This is when churches divide. When people realize, I don't believe that. Culture doesn't believe that. I'm out. Good. It's good that you know. It's good that you know. Oh, this guy's preaching from the Bible one way, Jesus. And I disagree. That's okay. Just be real about it. All right, and then we also have this wonderful phrase as we close. We'll have the worship team come up. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. It's this phrase, you must be saved. You must be saved. Here's my question for you today. Have you been saved? Have you been saved? Have you been born again? Don't you love that word saved? It just speaks of rescued. Have you been rescued? Have you been saved? Have you been pulled out of the quicksand? Psalm chapter 40 says, I waited patiently on the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. He pulled me up out of the quicksand. He pulled me up out of the miry pit and he set my feet upon the rock. Have you been pulled out of the quicksand? Have you been saved from hell? Unpopular message these days. It's unpopular among the church that there's a hell, you guys. Jesus talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. 
comes from the phrase, the Valley of Hinnon, the place there in Jerusalem that was their dump. They just dumped all the trash there and it always burned and the worms always lived there. And Jesus used that as an illustration of the place where people go when they rebel against God and don't receive his salvation. Have you been saved from that? Have you been saved from your sin and the bondage that you're in? Have you been saved to freedom? Have you been saved from the destruction that your sin has brought on your life? I mean, you have been like a tornado going through the Midwest, just tearing stuff up and throwing corn and throwing cars and cows. If you've seen Twister, you know, you're going through that trailer, just everything. And that's been your life because you've done it your way. You know, the beauty of the gospel is that the Lord takes what Satan meant for wickedness and he transposes it and he starts using it for something good. And he saves you from your past and he saves you toward a future of eternal life in paradise with God. Have you been saved? Have you been born again? I'm not asking if you're an American, red-blooded, Shower twice a day, you know, not asking none of that stuff. Is that a number that we shower twice, right? Okay, anyways, you know, polish, tuck, sh- tuck your shirt in, got a collar on today, you know, not asking any of that. I'm asking, are you saved? Have you been born again? As we close today, I just want to lead you in just some help for that. Just to pray to the Lord right now and to ask for his forgiveness and for salvation So if you've never prayed a prayer crying out to Jesus to save you from your sin, I'm gonna ask you to pray with me right now. Will you guys bow your heads? As I do this, there's nothing magical, special in the prayer. It's just sometimes we don't know what to say. I just wanna help you kind of formulate thought So if you've never been saved, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. If you'll hear his voice, don't wait till tomorrow. Today's the day. And you can just pray something like this. Just, Jesus, I hear that you are the one that will save me. I know that I have sinned. I've done life my way. I've bought into the message of this world that there are a lot of other options. Follow your truth. Speak your truth, whatever my truth might be. And, but today I'm hearing that there's one way and that it's through you, Jesus. And so I humble myself And I ask you to forgive this sinner. All the things I've ever done, that tornado path of destruction that's been behind me, I ask that you'd forgive me for that. Just how I've affected my family, my home, my community. Save me from all of that. Save me from bondage. Save me from addiction. And save me to you. Give me a new heart. Give me a new mind. I want to live for you. Help me to continue in you today. And if you prayed that prayer in your heart, I want you to rejoice that you can have assurance that you are saved. But I also want to give you an exhortation, kind of spur you on that now God wants you to grow in him and to follow him and to be a Christian and to live for him. We want to help you do that at church here. I want to encourage you to come and talk to me afterwards and I can help you live for Jesus and follow after Jesus. And then here we are together as a church, very aware of the unpopularity of this message today. 
It's an offense. It's hate speech. We're supposed to tolerate. Lord, we recognize that the only message that's not tolerated is the message of Jesus and his exclusivity. But Lord, we can expect that. So we pray that in this dark and depraved age, you would let us be like Peter and John here who stand in boldness with courage and speak the name of Jesus, the name above every name. We'd speak the message of Jesus at the copy machine, by the soccer goal, at the oil and lube place, Everywhere we're at, Lord, we just are speaking for the name of Jesus. And Lord, let us have that grace to also suffer for your namesake as we learn today. And we will rejoice that we'd be worthy to count and suffer, that we'd be worthy to suffer for your awesome name. Will you stand with me today? We're gonna sing a wonderful song about the name of Jesus and Let's just let his name flow from our lips with great love, with great admiration. Let's speak the name of Jesus. Let's sing the name of Jesus. As we do, let's let his name be the power and the authority of our life. Let's bow our knee before him now. Let's fall upon him and be broken now. This is the time. So we bring it to you, Lord. Go ahead, Joy. Uh, Those Calvary Chapel people sure talk a lot about Jesus. Well, Jesus is the center of it all. It's all about Jesus. There's no other name. What else would we talk about? Who else are we going to talk about? I don't know anybody else that's risen from the dead and lives and reigns for all eternity. He is the way. Amen? Amen. Well, you guys, live for Jesus this week. Preach Jesus. If you prayed today and cried out to the Lord to be the Savior of your life, come talk to me. I want to help point you in that direction to follow him. Uh, But Have a great week, you guys. Love you. And uh, go get your children from uh, downstairs right now.